You're live from New York. It's Saturday night. No way, stop! Go! This week's bonus episode is a special one for me because I am obsessed with Saturday Night Live. The whole process of the show and the amazing sketches that come from it. And I interviewed Jay-Z Zoners. He started there as an intern back in the mid-80s and he has a really cool story about how that came about. Then he climbed the ladder to eventually being a sketch musician. Then after leaving SNL, he became a record consultant. Worked with the likes of like Demi Lovato and the Jonas Brothers. And I actually went to high school with their bass player, Greg Garbowski. And Jay-Z had some really cool things to say about him. So it was pretty cool. We knew some of the same people, sort of, I guess. But uh, yeah, so we also talked about former cast members, the birthplace of Ron Burgundy, and some of the famous songs from the show, and so much more. You're going to love Jay-Z. Uh, he is an awesome guy, and I love talking to him. So without further ado, enjoy. What I like to do with these, I don't know if you had a chance to check any of them out. It's really just find out people's stories. And I think it was pretty cool when we chatted for a few minutes, uh, a couple of weeks back now. And you said that you really enjoyed movies and especially sequels. So we'll talk about, we'll talk about that too. But first, where does your story begin? Where'd you grow up? I was born in uh, Royal Oak, Michigan, just outside of Detroit. Oh, nice. Yeah. And I grew up in their uh, suburb called Birmingham um, in the 70s, went to the public schools there and went to college out in a small liberal arts school in, in Michigan called Albion College. Graduated there in 85 and uh, moved to New York City right away. Where'd you live in the city? Uh, well, when I moved to New York, um, the very first year I lived in, believe it or not, in uh, Various people's apartments, including the 17th floor of 30 Rockefeller Center. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like every other New Yorker, once I decided I was going to stay there, I mean, at my age, I moved every year. I tried every, every, oh, uh, I bet. every neighborhood. <laughs> I love the West Village the most. I spent a good number of years, three years in, in Park Slope, Brooklyn. And then I settled in Hell's Kitchen, where I was happy for like the last probably 10 years I lived there. When did you start playing? Like, at what age did you start playing an instrument? Um, You know, I tried a bunch of instruments like piano and things when I was young. And nothing ever took. I never learned how to read music, but picked up guitar when I was 15 and had a lot of uh, influential musicians around me at that time. Um, I mean, people a little bit older than me that were players. Um, and so from there, you know, that was my primary interest more so than like academia. Um, and it's pretty much what I always wanted to do. But I always found other work that was somewhat related. So my professional career didn't really begin until like... God, the mid '90s, really. Really, okay. Um, yeah, when I started playing on TV, uh, I mean, I had done a lot of sessions and a lot of composing for for film prior to that, 
film and television shows. Really? Any, any, any ones that I'm sure I've known a lot of them, but what were some ones that you worked on? Uh, I did. Um, uh, there was Ben Stiller and I were really good friends when he was just starting out and no way. he had a, sh- yeah, he had a show on MTV. Yeah. Ben Stiller um, show. Called nice. it, called it, yeah. The Ben Stiller show. Yeah. And then he actually got a deal with Fox to do um, a, a, a network show on, you know, on, uh, on Fox. Um, and so he brought me out to LA my first time to be his composer. And I did probably, I think the first three episodes and it was, it was a gamble for me at that point. It was like, do I go back? Cause I was working production for SNL at the time. And that was my, my staple gig. And I was thinking to myself, well, here I am in LA, man, I got a composer gig as opposed to, you know, having a production gig on SNL, but SNL had so much more reliability and security. And then of course the Ben Stiller show was canceled after the fifth show. Um, uh, And I don't think that it had anything to do with Ben or the content that he was producing and writing. It was really, I think it was budgetary. Um, But, and then they won an Emmy for Christ's sake after that. Um, but no way. uh, So they get canceled and they get an Emmy. Yeah. Yeah. And those, you know, that material is out there. We did a lot of parodies of U2 stuff where I would rewrite, uh, uh, a U2 song and when he would parody it with lyrics, um, and make it sound like the edge. Um, or, uh, then there was also, I did a couple of themes. There was a show called Friday Night on NBC. I wrote the theme music for and and a lot of the interstitial cues. Oh, and there was also awesome. a show for uh, Comedy Central um, called Exit 57. And I did two seasons of that. That was a lot of fun. I was kind of treading water. That was I was almost like out of my league on that one. It was like Stephen Colbert and uh, before you know, before he was any, anyone and Amy Sedaris, it's called exit 57. It was on comedy central. They so, two so that was before like strangers with candy and like, I, um, exit 57, I think strangers with candy. I'm pretty sure came after that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got to check that one out. Cause it's funny. Like I, yeah. I, I just watched the Dana Carvey, too funny to fail oh. on Hulu. I've, I've seen it like 20 yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's a, so that's a great film. That one is like so phenomenal because you had like Colbert was the backup for Carell and mm-hmm. like just like all these mm-hmm. guys working together. And then it obviously didn't work. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, that's funny. I got to check out yeah. seven. So how did you come about, you know, working at SNL? How, how does that even, where do you see a job post? That? It was a total fluke, man. Seriously, like, uh, the uh, the school that I went to, they have this great program. I think it still exists called the Great Lakes College Association New York Arts Program, and it was a bunch of liberal, small, you know, tiny, two thousand people colleges all around Michigan and the Midwest, Oberlin, um, Alma, Hillsdale. Um, Kalamazoo uh, College, I think. Uh, And what they would do is they would um, secure um, students with internships in the arts in New York. 
So if you had, you know, you were an art history uh, student, you would work in a museum for a semester. And I always loved this idea, but I didn't have the time to take a semester off. So I had made friends with the guy who was in the music area. And he said, look, man, if you're ever in New York, you know, come, come see me. So cut to it's September now. I had graduated in May and I spent the summer backpacking through Europe. And then I was just flopping at a friend's house in, in Manhattan because my sister had moved there and I was like building shelves for her or something. <laughs> and I went to go see this guy. Right. And this is September. And while I'm sitting there with him in his office, and it was in Hell's Kitchen, believe it or not, um, he gets a phone call from the woman who is running the music department for the new season of SNL. And she's like, I need an intern now, right? And this guy, he would always hook his students up the previous spring. So he didn't have anybody that he could put there. And I had already graduated. So we kind of made this this sort of, you know, wink and a nod at each other. And I went over there and told him I was a student and I got the job. And I uh, and that's why I didn't have an apartment because I wasn't making any money. Oh, my and, God. And I had I had to be there at insane hours. So I would wind up just sleeping on the couch. And then in the morning, I'd be the first one at the front desk. And so the producers would come in and think, oh my God, this guy's such a good worker. He's, he's so earnest. He's always here <laughs> catching, catching the early worm, you know? That's yeah. true. He stands <laughs> when he, when he locks his keys yeah. in his car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Ah, that is so cool. So what cast was that? So this is 85. Well, no, this is 85. So it was a very weird year. It was the year that uh, actually I think that NBC was considering canceling the show. Yeah. And they talked Lauren into coming back after a five-year absence. You know, Lauren created it, obviously, yeah. and then did it from 75 to 80. And then I think it was Dick Ebersaw and Gene Manian. Um, and, um, and so that 85 season is kind of known as like the lost season. Because oh my God. I'm looking weird, at the cast. Yeah. Weird wow, cast. What a right? weird... Nora, Nora Dunn, Joan Cusack. Dude, Robert Downey. Yeah. Robert Downey. Yeah. Robert. Yeah. Robert Downey. He used to, I used to bust him smoking a joint underneath the bleachers right, <laughs> right before 1130. Anthony Michael Hall. Oh my God, man. I can't believe some of those people they had. Dude, Damon Wayans was on a season of SNL? Yeah, that didn't end well. <laughs> he did a, I think he was doing a, playing Louis Farrakhan on Update. And he wanted, I, I, don't quote me on this. I could be wrong. Yeah, I probably shouldn't even talk about it, but I think he played Louis Farrakhan as gay. Oh. And, and the writers didn't want him to. The writers think they the writers were thinking they were doing you know making some poignant you know um uh point you know that they were getting their political views across yeah and that if he played him gay that no one would take it seriously but <laughs> you know damon went out there and knowing that it was live and that it was in totally within his control he played the guy gay wow and uh and then i don't think he ever did another show after that i'm pretty oh, sure man so what were some of the intern duties that you had to do? Just like gopher, like mm -hmm. just doing whatever? Well, back then, but keep in mind that the um, that 
production staff only lasted one season. Oh, okay. After that, my, my duties expanded and changed drastically. But that first year, my chief main fucking job was to go to the uh, get in a limo and go out to the airport and greet the band, the guest band. Oh my god, dude, that must have been like mm-hmm. surreal for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it wasn't it wasn't like all hunky dory. There were yeah. rats and. You know, there were, you know, but yeah, I mean, can you, you can't, couldn't really imagine a better job for me other than that be a rock star. Yeah. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, um, I was open to anything at that point. It was such a great, great time in my life because I had just come out of college and my mind was like a fucking sponge. Um, and I, I, didn't really consider SNL like a career or something that I could do year after year and have financial, you know, security um, at, at the minimum. But at the same time, I didn't, you know, uh, that ignorance is what kept me there. Because if I had like been all worried about it, man, and, you know, stressed and worried about making marks with Lauren, and or you know having a good write-up or whatever i would have failed but it was because it was just so much fun and i was able to have a lot of time off to pursue my music i grew and grew within the show and that's where i cut my teeth man i wound up doing 18 straight seasons from 85 to 03 wow when did you start when did you lose the intern role was that that next year yeah oh yeah i became music coordinator and then a a bunch of different titles but my job just kept growing sort of it it, whatever needed to be done that wasn't getting done right i would do um and i had a good a pretty good reputation and then when um i mean uh, as as being someone who they could count on and then in 95, G.E. Smith, who had been my boss, who was the music director and, of course, played in the house band, yeah. um, uh, he left. And so I started playing guitar for sketch music, for sketches. And that was my favorite, favorite part of the whole gig. I did that for seven years. That was so much fucking fun. So for seven years, so that was, I was trying to think of... Uh, I'm trying to think of all the, the sketches that have like the, because music is so key in everything, like movies, like sure. themes. Yeah. And uh, I'm thinking of Debbie Downer. So that was Debbie Downer. During yeah, that no, that's after me. The one, oh, that one, was afterwards? One. Okay. I know the trombone player that did it, but. Oh, okay. I was thinking that was before 2003, but I guess she was still there then. But uh, what were some of the. Here's what. Yeah, no, I worked with Rachel Dratch. Yeah, I never awesome. really did a music thing with her. I did music things with Anna Gasteyer. Nice. She's she awesome. was uh, Cinder Calhoun, the um, Lilith Fair artist who would sing a song at Update yeah. about the holidays. We did that like four or five times. That was <laughs> me playing guitar. Um, anything that Will Ferrell did, I did. I must have done it 10 times with him. Uh, he would hold a guitar and fake playing it while I played it off camera. <laughs> That's how we would rehearse it. And I did it with a lot of hosts, too. I did it with uh, David Coveney, with The Rock, with Brendan Fraser, with uh, Garth Brooks. Now, like, growing up outside of Detroit from, like, a small town, 
you move to New York City, you're sitting on the, you know, you're sitting on the couch with that guy when that phone call comes in. Is it crazy thinking about like that you're working with all these people? I know they're just regular people, but the SNL is like a staple. It's always, yeah, it's always there. Well, that's a good question, man, because, you know, any in any normal situation, I would say, yeah. But for me, it was like, I was like, oh, SNL music department. Cool. I'm going to be a rock star in a year, so I'll just do this. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, I was de- I was delusional, basically. Right. Yeah. But um, it was because of that. You could call it ignorance, actually. And, you know, the saying ignorance is bliss. Uh, because of that idea, that um, mindset, I I never let it get to me. It never overwhelmed me. Now, 15 years later, when I'm my rock star career was clearly not going to happen, and I wasn't really going anywhere playing sketches. Um, that's ironically, that's when I started thinking about it as a career and trying to get myself promoted which was entirely inappropriate um and that's when it all kind of started going sour Um, and yeah i mean but i'm I'm speaking from like an independent career not just like somebody who's into like the star fucking you know yeah yeah um uh but um and there were always times like you know uh al green fucking i i could barely speak when i met him uh david gilmore you know certain people it would always be surprised because i was doing it hanging with the best of them partying with the best of them and but every once in a while somebody would come in and i'd find myself like flabbergasted you know i probably just had something to do with my personal life at the time i don't want you to speak out of turn like mention people's names but it was, was there any people that like any of the bands that when you f- were doing the picking up at the airport or when they're you know there for the week, was there anybody that you're like, man, I love these guys. And you met them there and you're like, Oh my God, I, I can't even listen to these guys anymore because they're not who. Yeah. I mean, they're definitely, Gene, I mean, I guess I'd be like a Gene Simmons, but everybody knows how he is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, there's, that's twofold. It's like, do they not have the chops and the talent that you thought they had or yeah. are they just playing out dicks? Yeah. You know, are they just assholes, right? Yeah. And the thing that uh, the latter, the, what I found out about the latter is that these people are all dicks at certain points in their lives. Okay. So it doesn't, you could work with, um, you know, um, God, who's a good example? Paul Simon. Um, and he's going through a divorce and it's not going to be fun. Okay. Yeah. Um, or then you work with him and he just had a baby and you wind up having this like half an hour conversation with him and just feeling like you're somebody super important because he's giving you all this attention. You don't really, you can't put people that are under that much pressure living in the public eye. You cannot size them up. You can't, um, and you can't hold them accountable entirely for their psychological, you know, disposition because God knows what the fuck they're dealing with. Oh yeah. That's and, true. and plus they're artists to begin with. So, you know, we're all screwed up. <laughs> um, and yeah. And then the former, which is, um, yeah, uh, there were definitely some artists that came in that disappointed me in terms of 
of playing, but that was far and few between. And oh, frankly, yeah. really, really not even really not even related to the work I did on SNL. I mean, SNL, for the most part, the caliber um, of the bands they booked always brought it. And if they didn't, we figured out ways to help them to do it, you know? Yeah. So so what was like the process? Because just talking to you for 20 minutes, you're a pretty funny guy. So I think that's why you're able to connect with a lot of these people too, like Ben Stiller and... A little, little comedy helps. Yeah. A little. Oh no, totally. Yeah. So, so when you're working, when you're doing like the, what's the process of like coming up with say like the sketch music, like Will Farrell's like, you know, you said he's like miming playing guitar and you're actually playing. Is it just doing it right at rehearsal or are you him in in the, in a writer? No, they'll, you know, the whole thing, all of that stuff is conceptualized by the writers and the cast members um, on like a Tuesday night. And so they'll write like five or six different sketches that feature Will playing guitar. And we have to yeah. work them up that afternoon and play them in front of the whole staff at a big read through. And then after that, they pick like 30 sketches out of like 50 or 70. Yeah. And, um, and they work up the production for those and do, um, blocking over a period of two days. And then on Saturday night at seven thirty, they do a dress rehearsal, which is about two hours long. So they cut the things that don't work that they worked up. And the entire time during that period, the shit's evolving. Something could happen in the news. If it's current affair, that changes the lyric, um, or changes the disposition of a certain character. You know, so that's a beautiful thing about SNL is that, the live aspect of it allows them to to be so like on point you know they're so like the the shit doesn't escape them they get stuff on the news an update that the fucking 11 o'clock news didn't have yeah <laughs> no i love s and i i'm i'm in jersey and i grew up here and uh just everything about it i think it's like so addicting and i'm sure the people that had great success there and left, like the writers and the performers, I'm sure when they mm-hmm. leave, obviously they're going on to, in some cases, bigger and better things or they just didn't want to do it anymore. But it's like such an addicting process when you think about it. Like Monday is like a blank slate. I know sometimes they have, like I interviewed Jerry Minor. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I, I talked. Yeah, so he was such a cool guy. He was only a one-year guy. But he was like a writer, and then they brought him on as a performer instead of the sketches. But yep. mm-hmm. he was telling me some funny stories about like when people would pitch, like people would kind of like listen for the idea and kind of yeah, the like, mo- the Monday pitch meeting yeah. in Lauren's office. Yeah. Yep. So he said yeah. sometimes people would like kind of like try to take your idea, so you'd like almost pitch a yeah. fake idea. Yeah. So he, oh yeah, just oh, that whole all process. Kinds of bullshit. Yeah. yeah, and then like the the fake laughter for the people that were more popular. Yeah. They pitch a lame ass idea in Lauren's office, but they get all this like fake laughter that Lauren Lauren responds to laughter, you know, and it's like misleading. Well, I mean, he saw through it, but you know that kind of. I remember at one, a certain point there might even have been a memo circulated about people overemphasizing their reactions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Jerry, t- like, just going back to that, he was telling me he used to pitch fake ideas. And he said one time when Christopher Walk, 
I think it was Christopher Walken. He said he pitched like a fake mm-hmm. idea. He didn't remember the sketch, but it almost made it to air because it made yeah. Christopher Walken laugh. But he said he just like made up all these things on on the spot. He laughed, and yeah. then they were like, "Oh shit! Now we have to write this." <laughs> well, it's great to hear because I always liked that guy. And oh, he's if he was able to take it all with a grain of salt and have fun with it, then he was beating half the people in that room because you know a lot of most of the people there were like clinging to their notepads and freaking out and sweating before it came their time to talk. And so if he was having fun with it like that, then that's fucking awesome. Yeah, he was on because I he grew up. It, I think he grew up outside Detroit too, maybe because I know he went. Yeah, to Sac- I, that, but that could be. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So he he was on Bob and David yeah. for like a, a, the last season on HBO. But no, he's one of those guys, uh-huh. man. He just want him to. He's had so many shows that he was on Lucky Louie that got canceled after a year. But uh, so yeah. so what, so what was it like, like wor- working with Lauren? Because he's like he's really a God of sketch comedy. Like he started this. Uh, I got nothing. I have got nothing but great things to say about Michael. He's, he's, I always revered him. Um, but I revere, revere him even more now when I think about some of the experiences that I had and I've watched how he reacted, how he was the one who had the answer at the fucking pinnacle moment without any hesitation. Um, that, and then also just certain other methodologies that when I first started to figure out what they were, I questioned them and I thought, well, why the fuck is he doing this? But then the answer became clear later. Like fucking Don Corleone, not trusting Tom Higgins (laughs) with certain things. So then he could become his most trusted confidant, that kind of thing, you know, thinking two steps ahead, like Jeff. So I think one of the biggest moments, like when in your tenure there, like in the world, obviously in the world in New York City, was not right after nine eleven. Like they had the big thing with, you know, like the the Yankees that year and SNL. That was like a big deal when it came back. And dude, that was an amazing show. Oh, an I know, amazing show. And and Lauren again, you know, part of the heartbeat of the city. He had Giuliani and the firemen right there. In yeah. the opening monologue. And then Giuliani turned to him and, and said, you know, uh, Lauren was like, can we be funny now? And <laughs> Giuliani said, why start now? <laughs> I know. And I think that is what the essence of Lauren is and, and, and the show itself. Because all those people over the years, cast members, I think they get it. And I think these, the, that's why they, and he's so great at finding talent. Especially some of the newer yeah, guys. Yeah, there's like, that. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't always work out, but that's, again... There's another aspect of what Lauren did with the show is that it's a meat grinder. Okay. And those people that pop out and create, um, you know, extraneous careers afterwards, or those people who become like the catchphrase person at the water cooler Monday afternoon, those are the people that can stick it out. It's like survival of the fittest. It's not an easy gig. You got to fight for your airtime you got to fight for your writing you got to fight for for your uh principles and your um approach to standards and practices um it's it uh you know and and so there's a there's a method to the madness there 
Um, I always found it very fascinating when I would think about how, and I, I really experienced this when I went to the 40th anniversary show, which was, I don't know, three years ago or something. Remember? Yeah. It was a prime time, oh, prime yeah. time special. And so many of the people that I'd worked with over that 20 year period were there that I hadn't seen in so long. And it was like turning from somebody like Will Ferrell or, um, uh, Tina Fey to, uh, like Melanie Lewinsky or, or, or you know, some uh, who's like living in, um, Cincinnati and, um, uh, raising a family. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, how, why didn't things happen the way they did for this person as opposed to that person? And I think that first and foremost, that we all have to take responsibility for how things turn out because it's things that we do. But there's also a certain element of timing and timing in society in, in terms of like popular culture is largely luck. That's my opinion. I think that you can find yourself in the right place in time by no means of your own. And you can become extremely successful or completely, um, you know, uh, stomped on. Um, and so I think that, you know, first and foremost, it's whatever they did, how they reacted to the grind, but then also what was happening in society. Like, I mean, was there room for a guy like, like Will Ferrell to come on to the Hollywood movie scene and do all these comedic movies? Well, when was the last time we had a Jerry Lewis? Okay. Oh, I know. Um, right. So maybe there was a hole there. Okay. And I'm not uh, com uh, comparing him to Jerry Lewis. I'm just, you know, um, saying it as an example because, uh, I mean, look at Cherry O'Terry. God bless her. I love that girl. I know. She, that young, that woman, she's terrific. I've always loved her. She was always very sweet to me. But, and her and Will were on par for a while together as cast members. Oh yeah. Um, and I, I think that it's not because of anything that Sherry did. Um, really, I think that it's more that there wasn't a space for a young woman like that in Hollywood at the time that there was for Will. No, that's true. Does that make sense? And Will was at the fight. So I totally agree with everything you said. Like, obviously you have to have the skill, but when you're in that position, you have to be ready to hit a home run. Like Will playing uh, George Bush. You're in front of the yeah. camera because that is like a big deal. Like you're, uh, you're always going to yeah. be in business, you know, when you're right. able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that certainly helped a lot. And speaking to that very quickly, I'll just touch on that because again, I'd like to come back to these sort of basic fundamental characteristics of the show and yeah. how Lauren, Lauren, I think should get credit for them. And that is the whole political satire. And if you look if you were to look at a bar graph of ratings over the 43 year, 45 year history now, whatever it is, um, you would see a spike every election year. Oh yeah. Because the fodder, you know, um, I mean, look at Tina Fey and Nancy Palin. I know. Sake, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 30 rock may never have happened. Or maybe it was already in production. Who knows? But, uh, um, I don't know. But it's like that, that's when you have a show that is that connected to the pulse of society, you got an institution. Oh, yeah. And that's what, that's what they have 
created. And it was probably should have been considered an institution when I left in 2003. Um, and it probably was, but if I had really been aware of that, I probably never would have left. Yeah. You know, um, but then I'd be living this isolated New York city person life. Yeah. I didn't have enough money for the house in the Hamptons. No, that's true. So here's a question. We'll talk a little bit like movies. And since you obviously enjoy music because you play Mm -hmm. it. So, so isn't it funny? We we mentioned like uh, Jerry Lewis and like Will Ferrell. There's, there's only like a, I think in movies, it's pretty rare, but you had like Will Ferrell. He did some really big movies and not saying he hasn't done any big movies lately, but just think like Jim Carrey. He had like those four movies in a row that he nailed and then it's almost yeah. like, it's almost like a band. Sometimes there's only like yeah. five albums worth of good material. Obviously, there's like yeah. the exception to the rules, but isn't that kind of sure. odd? No, I don't think it's odd at all, man. I think that it's all like very cyclical and part of the whole creative process. And I think that's great that you brought up the band thing because it's not even really four or five albums. It's the, the saying is everybody's got a record in them question. Yeah. Is, do they have a second, second record. Yeah. Right. And which is what's called the sophomore slump. Right. It's like yeah. when somebody comes out with a hit record that everyone's wondering, Oh, is it a one hit wonder? Like, <laughs> you know, soft sell or something. Or that's Aaron true. Yeah. I give, yeah. I know? gave it way too much credit. Um, yeah. That's a lot of albums. Yeah. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, for comedians or for actors, I think it's different because it's all about what the scripts are, which is a reflection of society and, and, you know, um, how good the production is because, or even the marketing, because a great movie can flop because of marketing. Um, so, you know, Will, I think maybe, you know, I think that Will may, I think the last few things that I've heard about that he did, um, might not have garnered the um, box office receipts that he was has been known for. Yeah, but he's he's still viable. Jim Carrey, on the other hand, you know, you got somebody who talk about peaking. Right? Oh, I know. I mean, Will Will's had a slow and steady rise to the top, and he's been hanging out at there. But Jim shot up, right, and had just. Uh, yeah. overly talented accused of being an over actor over and over on sets. Like he alienated people on movie sets because he was just so fucking good. Yeah. And that's not his fault. He was doing what they were paying him to do. I don't know. Did you just see the documentary on Netflix about the filming of man on the moon? I did not know, but I oh. was with, I, he, I was with him then and I worked with REM on that. Yeah. Really? Well, I mean, they did SNL. Oh, that's cool. No, so if you get a chance to watch it, he stayed in character all the time. At, oh, yeah. At, no, as, I saw him at an SNL rap party with his head shaved. Oh, my God. He, he, he was acting. And everybody was wondering. Nobody even knew about the movie. They were filming it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess they knew. But everyone was wondering, why the fuck is he here and he's bald? You know? <laughs> so the days when they were shooting the Tony Clifton scenes, he would... It seemed because it was like behind the scenes footage. He seemed like he was pissed drunk. And even I just listened to an interview on Mark Marin with Danny DeVito. And he even said it was really difficult because he'd stay in character. Like he, they'd have to drag him to the hair and makeup. Like it was insane. 
I got a great story for you. Oh, God. Which you're going to like because it has to do with film. Sweet. And it has to do with Will. And it, it, it's directly correlated to um, Jim Carrey and Tony Clifton. So, um, real quickly, um, when um, I don't know how Will Farrell and Adam McKay figured this out, okay? Because um, I didn't really understand it all until much later. Um, but it became pretty obvious to some of the cast members that if they're, they had a breakout character that Lauren was going to bring to Hollywood, like Wayne's World, um, you know, and consequently they did so many, you know, they did the Coneheads, they did uh, Mary Can- Catherine Gallagher, Superstar, they did Tim Meadows, The lady Ma- Ladies Man, they did Night at the Roxbury, right? All those films that were based on SNL characters, okay? Even if you were a writer on that, you didn't get the money you would have gotten because NBC and Lorne owned those characters. Understand? Yeah. Yeah, but they, they had whatever, the rights to the likeness of that character. So... I was up in the office one one week off during a season showing it to my sister-in-law and we heard Adam and Will arguing in the next room and they were trying to figure out a song that they wanted for the screenplay they were writing. And I, of course, figured it out what it was and I had it on CD on like best hits of the 70s. Uh, it was Drift Away. Um, and, uh, and I was like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, oh, we're just working on it. And about a month later, Will started appearing in meetings dressed as Ron Burgundy. In character, in character as Ron Burgundy. Okay. And it was there. I, I think that this is how it all happened, or maybe it was just blind luck. But their thinking was, let's develop the character, but let's never put him on the show. Because the second they put the character on the show, that's when they own the likeness. That's amazing. So Will even appeared on stage with Puff Daddy when I had a 70-piece orchestra. They were doing the Led Zeppelin mashup for Cashmere for Godzilla. Oh, yeah. And, oh, and, and Will came to me and he was like, I want to go on stage. And I was like, am I talking to Will or am I talking to uh, Roy? <laughs> or uh, uh, Ray uh, Burgundy, Ron, Ron, <laughs> Ron, Ron, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, and he's like, it's Ron, <laughs> and I was like, well, then in that case, I got nothing to fucking say about it. <laughs> <laughs> and he went up there, and we have videotape of him mugging Puff Daddy during, and Puffy's looking at him, going like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and he's there in his 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 velvet suit with the ascot and the pipe or whatever. You know, and um, and so those guys, you know, clearly very effectively developed that screenplay, got it produced, had a number of sequels as as your topic. Yes. Um, because it was such a great idea and it had such great success and it was kind of groundbreaking. And, you know, how they say, write what you know about. Well, being a news team is not that unlike SNL. I mean, I watch the news for, for the comedy in it (laughs) because of, I, I see how people react on live TV. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and um, so there are a lot of factors, I think, that went into the success of that movie. But God bless them for fucking doing it in that way. And when you brought up um, Jim Carrey going to meetings as Tony Clifton or having a hard time getting out of character, I immediately thought of that. Because it's, yeah, it's such a great fucking story. And I don't think either one of those guys would really mind me talking about it. You know, I think it's pretty much general. Yeah, just the way they they knew that that was the case. Maybe they just heard from some of those other no i'm sure i mean it became obvious i mean there were there were other writers that left that wrote other screenplays in hollywood and were making a lot of fucking money yeah all right and um but that was not the ticket if you were going to do it and i'm not putting down lauren or nbc i mean that's business oh yeah you know yeah and I don't think they were trying to curtail anybody's creativity either. I think that they were actually giving opportunities to these people. You know, some of those movies never would have been made. No, yeah, I don't think they would have made an It's Pat movie if it wasn't for... Oh, my NBC. God. I sang that meme. A man or a she. It's time for androgyny. It's just Pat. That was you? We used to overdub all of the the music department anytime we had to do a jingle we would overdub the not ready for primetime singers because we we needed to accrue ask uh after a dollars to get insurance because nbc didn't give us insurance so we would always just double our parts and bury it in the mix because none of us were really great singers (laughs) yeah and we'd hire a couple ringers you know to come in and we'd always pay them extra Dude, I sang Toonses. Yeah. I sang Toonses. I sang Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer. I sang yes. Middle Aged Man. I sang, I'm just trying to think of the best ones. Anyway, yeah, that was a great part of it too, doing those sessions. Oh, I, I learned a lot about studio, studio recording doing that. So you, pl- you still play, obviously, right? It's got to be like. Yeah, I mean, right now I'm actually just. Um, uh, I, I went to work for Disney. I don't know if we even got into all this after I left SNL. Um, I had a, a brief stint as a record label consultant, and then I took on an artist development position at the Disney Music Group in 06. And I worked there until uh, the 18, uh, October of 18. Oh, wow. And um, during that period, I... I developed a lot of the younger acts um we could jonas brothers that, but I don't, yeah i was instrumental with the jonas brothers yeah the one Absolutely. Uh, so you know them like great there's a guy that the the bassist uh, greg garbowski i know greg yeah i went to high school with him my, my wife graduated no with him yeah i used to play uh, i used to play wiffle ball in his backyard greg's a great guy man Dude, he was never really world. like the consummate. He was never the consummate bass player. None of the original band members were <clears throat> consummate players. But Greg has taken on a, a really great role with Philly Mac and John John Taylor um, in the management side of things. And he's become very successful. And I think I saw him not too long ago at like a Demi Lovato gig or something. And and um, I was very impressed with what he's done. Yeah, and his wife's like a recording artist too, or his girlfriend. I don't know if he's married or not, but I have no idea. But if you ever talk to him, you can say, oh, you dude, talk to Jay-Z. What is that? Yeah. And what are the chances? Yeah. 
Well, they were a great, they were a great thing for me because they actually really, um, we kind of helped each other. They gave me the opportunity to think in different ways. And, um, I saw the potential, um, in, in them as a group and as in, in Nick and Joe and, and, you know, Kevin in his own right. But it was a, a something, a great thing to be a part of because not only did we take a band that Columbia dropped and, and if you look at that movie, Chasing Happiness or whatever it is, they don't give any credit to the Disney music group for, for bringing them around. They give all the credit to Columbia, but Columbia fucking dropped them. And we made them a success. Yeah. And then they went back to Columbia after Nick did his solo thing. Right. Um, so that there's, there's a little bit of, uh, of something there that I, I just, um, it doesn't, does, it never felt quite right. Not for me, but for my colleagues. Um, but like I was trying to say is that um, they gave me the opportunity to think outside of the box and really use my artist relations skills and my musician skills and my my knowledge of um, of production. Uh, it was a, like a perfect combination, unlike a lot of the other Disney artists. Okay, um, and another thing is that all of a sudden, you know, we broke them. Um, the Disney music groups having a hard time breaking a new artist now, but we broke them. Yeah. And, um, they, uh, you know, they did SNL. I went back to oh, SNL yeah. as like, as like the record exec. Oh my God. What was that yeah. like? Yeah. It was fucking awesome. <laughs> I'm standing there with him and the, with the three of them and the dad and Lauren comes in and runs up and hugs me before he even introduces himself. Uh, what is that like, man? Yeah. That must it was so fucking cool. awesome. Yeah, it was great. Huh. I did, I went back probably four times. I went back with John Mayer, who I was working with huh, uh, nice. for Columbia. I went with System of a Down for Columbia, um, which was a nightmare because Serge swore, um, and I promised them he wouldn't. <laughs> huh. uh, yeah, and um, who else? Uh, Demi. I went back with Demi. Um, I guess Demi so you're kind of a big deal. Pardon me? You're a big deal. Well, no, dude. I mean, come on. I'm just a fucking guitar player from Detroit who's had, <laughs> some, had some good jobs. And yeah. I mean, if anything, there's some, I have some longevity in my jobs, you know, like Disney 14 years, SNL 18. That's what I mean. A resume, and, uh, that's, a, that's good. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm like, I'm not ready to retire. Oh, hell no. <laughs> So, so one question. So what, what ideally when you're done with school and obviously everything worked out perfect and look where you are now and look what you did, but what did you really want to do? Like after school, when you graduated college? Oh, to be honest with you, man, at that point, I still wanted to be a rock star. I was okay, in, a, cool. um, I was in an original band. Um, the, the other members were a year younger than me. So they were, I was waiting for them to get out of school. And I, at that point, I had been, oddly enough, I became, I, I was bitten by the academic bug. I had oh. always been a shitty, shitty student. My grades in high school were terrible. The only reason I got into Albion College was because I sent them a demo tape of some original music. 
and they let me in because they thought I'd be like an artistic contributor, which I did actually. But around, I think the end of my sophomore year, early junior year, I started getting into my classes. I started like listening to my professors and I started four pointing my classes. And then all of a sudden my relationship with my father had become really great because he had been waiting for that in me. Uh, and it was probably a lot of marijuana use and being around Detroit and <laughs> with hippies and guitar players, you know. So at that point, I graduated Dean's List with an English degree and a communications degree. And I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write. I, was, I thought I was going to write a book. I was like when I was backpacking through Europe before I went to uh, New York in September, I was keeping like a mad ass journal and I thought I was going to have my first book written within a year. And then everything fucking changed. Everything yeah. fucking changed. Do you, do you still have that journal? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I've done a lot of other writing since. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a writer pretty much first and foremost. Oh, good. I would say you could write a book. Yeah, I thought about that too. I mean, and, and this is probably part of like sort of, you know, zeroing in on that. You know, doing these kinds of talks, but I have oh, to say, yeah. you've been you've been great to talk to. Your energy is really great. You don't. Well, you're you, awesome. Man. You're very. You're, you uh, you read the conversation very well. Like you don't talk over me. And some people have a problem with that, and then we lose the the rhythm. No, it's been great talking to you, man. Because I love SNL, and you're an awesome guy. And well, it's been awesome, man. Thank you for taking the time. And if you ever, I don't know if you ever come to New York, but uh, yeah, it'd be cool to connect with you because you're. For sure, dog. I'd like that. So, will you let me know when? Oh, you totally. Do it or send me yeah, a yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah, definitely. Right? Yeah. Great. That'd be awesome, dude. And if you and listen, man, if you you know if you think of something you want to ask me, or you want to like cap it off with something extra, feel free to reach out, man. Yeah, I'll do that. Or honestly, you know? I could probably yeah. put this out and then do another one and just talk to you about. Yeah, for we'll do a hour. sequel. We'll Shit. do our sequel. And, yeah, so we'll talk more sequels this time. We kind of yeah. did about the actors and how the films afterwards, you know, kind of go down a yeah. little bit. But uh, yeah, no, I'm really interested in that too because I want to know like how many times is that is the inception of the idea based on a trilogy, and how many times do they decide to do it afterwards? You know, I mean, what's the thinking there? Obviously, the Lord of the Rings was going to be a trilogy. Yeah, but was was the Godfather? I don't know. I mean, it took him thirty I, years to do the third one, right? I know. Yeah. So yeah, no, that's one of the weird ones. But yeah, no, well, that's what we'll do next time. We'll talk more sequels. Awesome. Awesome, man. Have a great night. All right, Doug. You too, man. All right. So that was Jay Z's honors. He was awesome. Some of the stories he said were just so cool. The whole time when I was talking to him, I was grinning ear to ear. So yeah, so don't forget to review, rate, share our podcast, and follow us on all social media at Sequels Only. Good night.